Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to the Frankly Speaking podcast by Friends of Europe. I'm your host this week, Chris Kremitis Courtney, Senior Fellow for Peace, Security, and Defense, and our digital future. In recent episodes, we've discussed the various ways that emerging technologies such as extended reality, artificial intelligence, and neurotechnology are impacting democracy, security, and human agency. This week, we'll be talking about digital democracy, so we are delighted to be joined by Audrey Tung, Taiwan's Minister for Digital Affairs. Audrey Tung is a globally recognized hacktivist and software engineer who protested Taiwan's government during the 2014 Sunflower Movement and later became their country's first digital minister and first non-binary and openly transgender cabinet member in the world. Minister Audrey Tong is leading the way on developing Taiwan's digital democracy, considered one of the most open in the world. Minister Tong, welcome to the podcast. And let's start with our first question. We've seen in recent years how Taiwan has become a global leader on digital democracy. Can you please explain to our listeners Taiwan's approach to digital democracy? Certainly. So it begins um, Taiwan's democratization. Uh, in the 80s and in 96, we had our first direct election of our president. Uh, and by that time, the World Web is already widely popular in Taiwan. So in a sense, the digital world and the democracy uh, went hand to hand in tandem uh, in the Taiwanese history. Now, uh, we spoke about the bandwidth and the latency of technology a lot. But I also like to extend this metaphor to democracy. Traditional democracy using um, centuries-old methodologies uh, is a very high latency, like once every four years or two years, and very low bandwidth, like three bits or five bits every time you vote um, technology. But just like any social technology, it improves as people introduce better bandwidth and lower latency. For example, in Taiwan, 5,000 people joining in an e-signature can summon a ministerial response, or if it's cross-ministerial, the participation officers run a collaborative meeting, usually in a place that the people petitions. So that is how we get the 17 years old and 70 years old working hand in hand to push for, for example, banning plastic straws or things like that in all sorts of pro-social ways. And that increases the bandwidth because you can do a continuous integration of the citizens' input. Or uh, we have presidential hackathon that invites people to take their ideas that works on a small district, uh, for example, remote telemedicine and things like that, and work across all the sectors. And five winners each year, we give them the fiscal, the personnel, and the regulatory support to take their local ideas into the next year's presidential mandate to make it uh, truly national. Again, this rewards cross-sector collaboration by reducing the latency from having an idea to implementing the idea. Thank you so much. I think that's something, uh, having read a lot about what you're doing there in Taiwan, that's an aspect I never thought of, is that the more frequent inputs from from people uh, instead of sort of the periodic ones. So, I mean, it's already really... um, you know, thinking in a very different way about digital democracy. So thank you for that. And also, um, you know, since Taiwan is, is a global leader on digital democracy, we're all sort of watching what you're doing. Uh, what has Taiwan learned from 
digital citizen engagement platforms like V Taiwan and Join, and you probably have an even newer one now. So, and what have you learned from those? And how do you build buy-in from people who may not be so comfortable using digital platforms? Yeah, V Taiwan started late 2014, uh, and around that time, almost a decade ago. Um, the idea of retweets, of things going viral, and so on, is all the rage. Uh, there were some jurisdictions uh, that uh, simply refused uh, to tolerate any civil society organizing online, and therefore imposed very draconian control to censor the speech uh, internally. And in Taiwan, while we recognize the retweet button, the share button, does increase polarization and extremism, we embraced without censorship or takedown by building similar social media platforms, but in the social sector. So with the help of credibly neutral places, such as our National Academy uh, or the PTT forum, which is like Reddit, except it's run by students at the National Taiwan University for 25 years. It's all open source, community governed. It doesn't serve uh, shareholders or advertisers. In such pro-social social media, we collaborated with the social sector to share the agenda-setting power. So in the V-Taiwan formula, the online part of agenda-setting, we ask people, for example, what do you think about the UberX driver who has no professional driver's license, picking up strangers they meet on the street through an app, and charging them for it? Uh, we ask such open-ended questions that would probably always lead to um, polarization if asked on the anti-social corners of social media, but because we designed to be pro-social, the common values uh, that uh, bridges across the divides uh, surface to the top. We use early AI algorithms not to build addiction, but to build consensus. So for example, um, while one side thinks it's gig economy that exploits the uh, uh, workers, and the other side thinks it's a platform economy, that is the future of uh, economy, both sides uh, think that insurance, registration, and so on is important, and so is not undercutting existing medias. So by designing the pro-social social media engagement platforms, within three weeks, we immediately get a good picture to people's eyes. Where are we polarized and where do we actually agree? And then we invite the stakeholders to the table, to a multi-stakeholder meeting, and the agenda is set just by the consensus points that's established by the online part of the conversation. So this is a hybrid model, the online agenda setting and the offline face-to-face -face meeting that suits out the feasibility of implementing those common values. And because uh, it's always live stream, so people who speak, for example, committing uh, to the uh, agenda that's set by the crowd, like from Uber and the taxi union, and so on, directly transform to workable regulations and even laws. The VTAM process counts 80% uh, or so success rates in the two dozens or so of the deliberations that we run during 2014 to 2017. And after that, it's um, becoming a national level regulation of participation officers and the joint platform is in turn maintained by the National Development Council to tackle not just emerging economy issues, but with all issues. Uh, and to date, uh, the joint platform has served more than half of Taiwanese uh, population. More than half the population. I, 
I think that may, makes a lot of democracies green with envy to have that level of citizen engagement. Um, and, and can you briefly, just to quickly follow up, you talked about pro-social media. Can you, are there any other examples of pro-social media we can learn about? Uh, because Certainly. I think it's, I think it's so unique and it's so needed in today's world. Yes. So the algorithm, uh, that's to say the code that we did for the Taiwan, uh, is with the help of a algorithm called Polis or PLL.IS. And Polis is designed, as I mentioned, to visualize not just the polarization, but also the degree of agreement of breaching narratives of bipartisanship. Now, the best thing about Polis is that it's all open source. Everybody can set it about itself and also build research on top of it. And one thing uh, called Birdwatch, later Community Notes in Twitter, took the idea from Polis and built the fact-checking uh, community on top of Twitter. So now if you see a tweet uh, by, I don't know, Elon Musk or someone uh, that uh, sometimes collapses the context, you will see a very helpful note, a community note attached to the tweet. So it travels when people retweet it. And the algorithm to select what community note to display is exactly the same as the polis. In that, we select the voices that cuts across the divide and bridges across ideological defenses. Thank you. That's fascinating. I, I was, um, you know, I was reading this week the new bad bot survey from Imperva and saw that now 47% of all internet traffic comes from bots, probably not news to you. And it seems that humans may soon be outnumbered on the internet. So, you know, here at Friends of Europe, we talk a lot about um, these things. And, you know, given the, these numbers, you know, 47%, probably growing, plus the emergence of new technologies like extended reality, artificial intelligence, how do you see Taiwan's approach to digital democracy evolving in the future? That's a great question. Um, indeed, in Taiwan, we have broadband as a human right. So anywhere, if you don't have the kind of bandwidth to do the kind of the video conferencing we're doing now, it's personally my fault. <laughs> and I will see to it uh, that it's addressed. And because um, without broadband access, if you only have intermittent text-based access, there really is no way to tell a human from a bot uh, the way of uh, our continuous interaction and like uh, I see you nodding to my this sentence and not like five sentences ago, uh, and so on is essential in establishing a sense of uh, rapport, of mutual support um, across the, the internet. So this is a very basic layer. And on top of that, uh, for asynchronous communications like electronic documents and so on, uh, we also have a pretty advanced system that lets you digitally sign documents on your phone uh, using the uh, FIDO for authentication and uh, PKCS uh, for internationally recognized uh, signatures and so on. So it can be signed uh, using a form of a plastic card, or it can also be with your phone and carry it uh, wherever you go. And so this is exactly the same as how we're in the cybersecurity. We have this idea of zero trust architecture in that whenever I sign a document, it checks my biometric on my device, not anywhere else. Uh, and the fingerprint of that device so that it's not compromised, and also the behavior. Like if I suddenly connect um, from Taipei and then the next minute uh, I change uh, my IP address and connect from Belgium, then that's uh, probably something fishy is going on, maybe involving a VPN. 
So basically, uh, by designing uh, with the triple factor in mind, uh, we make sure that when people sign official documents or otherwise those things, um, they will be associated uh, with a actual verifiable uh, credential and identity so that one can distinguish a human versus a bot. But of course, that also carries privacy implications. So we're working with the wireless consortium, W3C, on what we call zero knowledge proofs of identity. That is to say, uh, for example, if I want to buy some um, alcohol or whatever, uh, I have to prove that I'm uh, 18 years old, but I don't need to reveal my age and the verifiable credentials, the centralized identifiers, and so on, are the kind of technology we're rolling out as we speak. Thank you so much. And I, I, um, a few things there. One is the, uh, the architecture and the approach you, des you described sounds like a, a good way to, uh, to do online voting in a safe and trusted way. But I had one, <laughs> one question about what you mentioned about broadband as a human right. I know, uh, you know it's a dream in some places. You're actually trying to do it. What are the most, I mean, whenever people talk about broadband as a human right, it's always the cost issue comes up. Well, we can't afford it, right? So I, I guess if you could let us know, since you're actually doing it, you've done it, and you're always working on it, what are the major challenges to enacting a, a policy of broadband as a human right, and how do you overcome them? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So like many other jurisdictions, we have a universal service fund uh, that asks the telecoms to heavily subsidize uh, the kind of telecom construction that they hear of the places that does not make uh, full commercial sense uh, to build broadband. But we also invest a lot in advanced uh, research and development to get uh, more inexpensive ways of delivering uh, broadband. Uh, microwave transmitters from the early uh, era and from now, uh, non-geostationary satellite access uh, and even balloons <laughs> that are uh, either tethered or untethered. Uh, all these uh, are ways to deliver to the last mile. And we have a uh, phone table uh, of the um, least served areas, usually due to lack of electricity and so on. Uh, but even on those, for example, high mountains, the tip of Taiwan, um, almost 4,000 meters high. We still uh, use, for example, helicopters <laughs> to uh, have the uh, 5G uh, or 4G telecom towers or including solar panels and so on, uh, so that it can be uh, placed in a, uh, in a way that uh, even remote and uh, far from the power grid, it can still power itself and serve the communication needs. So I would say it's both uh, sensible spectrum allocation and spectrum auction rules. Uh, and the Universal Service Fund with an eye on innovation. Thank you. Wow, so much to so much to learn there. And, and just one one last question for you um, today, and that is, what can Europe and the broader West learn from Taiwan's approach to digital democracy? We've watched. Uh, you know, we all struggle with disinformation. We all struggle with disinformation during COVID. And somehow this, this transparency, this openness, this, this approach that Taiwan has, uh, while it, it probably seemed difficult where you are, we all watched and said, wow, they're doing it right. So what can we, you know, what can we learn from your approach? What can the rest of it, what lessons can we take? So um, to give no trust is to get no trust. So even when 
the people's trust in the government uh, was at a historic low, at below 10% in 2014 uh, in Taiwan. We worked tirelessly with Korea public service. We built alliance with them to make sure that still we trust the citizens, even though the citizen at that time doesn't trust that. Uh, and that means radical transparency. Um, every lobbyist visit, every interview, including this one uh, with me, you can find it online uh, under Creative Commons. So people understand the why and how of policymaking, not just the what of policies. Because open data, if it's done in a continuous way, like open API, when things happen, people can see that there is an immutable record that is already there. But if you only open because of demand of freedom of information access or things like that, people suspect the career public service of red acting or <clears throat> selective opening up and so on. So building a culture of continuous integration of citizen input is of course important, but it rests on the foundation of radical transparency and open data. And especially in the context of the pandemic, when people understand uh, the latest versions right, of the virus code, of the mutation of the virus, people do have their uh, adaptability and resilience that they can uh, counter the latest variants of the virus. If uh, we do it in a way of top-down lockdowns, uh, take-down shutdowns, uh, without explaining fully the science behind it, then when the virus mutates, but the measures do not, it leads to a lot of distrust between all the stakeholders. But by opening up and basically working with the journalists to answer all questions every 2 p.m., uh, it enables everyone to gain a degree of understanding of epidemiology and also uh, we work with students and lifelong learning centers so they can actually fact check by contributing to the grassroots fact checking network. Epidemiology, uh, public health expertise to the coronavirus is like journalism, civic journalism to the disinformation crisis. When everybody learns the basic habits of wearing a mask and washing hands and so on, uh, then uh, people build vaccines of the mind, immunity of the mind against polarization and extremism. Thank you so much. And that's, I think that's something we're all aiming for is, is that cognitive uh, immunization sort of that cognitive resilience uh, that takes so much more than education, but a whole systemic approach. And, and that's all the time we have this for this week's episode, uh, dear listeners. And once again, we'd like to thank our guest, Minister Audrey Tang, for joining us. Uh, you can learn more about digital democracy in Taiwan by going to moda.gov.tw. That's all for us this week, and goodbye. We'll leave it there for today. If you haven't already, consider subscribing to the Frankly Speaking podcast newsletter or following us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. And if you've enjoyed the show, please leave us a review or a rating as it truly helps us reach more curious minds like yours. And don't forget to tune in again this time next week.